Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with David Bradley from QPilot. David is the founder of QPilot, and QPilot is an automatic reordering and subscription platform for e-commerce. They have a particular focus on B2B merchants and all of the additional complexities that go along with servicing B2B customers and their repurchasing needs. I learned a ton, and I think you will too. Enjoy. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the E-Commerce Edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the pod. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome David Bradley from QPilot to the pod. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Mate, it's awesome to have you here. We were talking off air about the fact that I'm in Mexico now. You've already been down to Mexico. I think you said two or three times this year already, and you're going you're gonna to come down again later this year. So I'm sure at some point we'll actually be able to meet in person, which I look forward to. Absolutely. That would be such a pleasure to see you in Mexico and learn everything that you've gotten to learn while you're there. Oh, love it. And you're based in the great state of Texas in the amazing tech hub known as Austin. That's right. I split my time between Austin, Texas and Denver, Colorado. Wow. The best of both worlds. The high country <laughs> for the high country for the snow and the low country for the heat and the warmth. Absolutely. Very privileged to be able to do that. Mate, such good stuff. And before we get into before we get into QPilot and you're the founder of QPilot, you're yeah. also founder of Patterns in the Cloud. You right. come from a digital background. You used to work with Sweet Island Consulting, with NetSuite Consulting, which is that heavy ERP space for commerce. Tell us how you came to, to be in the space. What piqued your interest about tech, e-commerce, SaaS, cloud, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. I've had a, an interesting journey to becoming a software founder after working with ERP software specifically. So when I was in college at University of Texas at Austin, Hookham Horns, I worked for entrepreneurs that were running small businesses using NetSuite. And at the time, mostly what NetSuite was focused on was cloud-based ERP and accounting and was starting to layer on e-commerce features. If you worked with NetSuite before, you know the product is called Suite Commerce that they've developed in that ecosystem. And a lot of what I would work on as an e-commerce specialist is helping small and medium-sized business owners implement NetSuite and in particular implement their e-commerce programs, their e-commerce channels via integrations, website production, different things like that for their online stores and getting their e-commerce channels integrated with NetSuite. So very frequently it would start off with online store integrations with Adobe stores and Magento, you'd see WooCommerce, Shopify eventually as well. And one of the things that would come up a lot in these ERP implementations is the idea of having an auto ship program or some kind of repeat delivery program. And it was always interesting to me as to who would want to build that. And I saw multiple facets, multiple channels. One was direct to consumers where on the online store, they wanted to have an auto ship or an auto delivery program where you could subscribe to a product or a number of products and have them set up on a schedule for repeat delivery. So much, much how we think of subscribe and save today. And this was back in about 2012, 13, 
So we didn't necessarily have a strong concept of subscribe and save then, but we had this idea of, okay, it's an auto ship program and you're going to get things on a schedule. And then what we also saw were B2B sellers wanting to essentially have their purchase orders work this way. And the primary reason why the B2B sellers would want this is because they wanted a customer experience where a purchaser would have a portal that they could see an order and a delivery that's scheduled for the future. So they could plan for it and they could make changes to it ideally in that portal. And obviously on the seller side, they were very desirous of A, having a repeat order being managed a little bit easier for them, but also more importantly, being able to schedule the inventory to be available for that order. So it was interesting to see the value propositions that were very meaningful in B2B versus D2C. And it's been fascinating to become a software founder that works specifically in that space, building a platform, which is now Cube, that powers the delivery automation for both the product subscriptions that we now know as subscribe and save and auto ship of D2C stores, as well as the repeat ordering where essentially purchase orders are being managed in a similar type of customer experience to what goes on in D2C, where you can log into a portal and manage a subscription. While our B2B sellers don't necessarily think of it so much as a subscription, as maybe they'll call it an auto ship or repeat delivery, it's something that has been nice to see in terms of the evolution of how platforms like Qpilot are being leveraged these days. Wow, I've got just like 50 questions just popped in my mind just as you were speaking there. This is an exciting space, right? Whether you want to call it subscriptions or subscribe and save, whether you want to call it auto ship, whatever you call it. I remember the days when I first, when I was, for example, starting to work with HealthPost, one of the first projects that I was brought into Scope was a subscription model. And I was brought into to Scope a completely custom subscription engine for the business because at the time, there was really nothing out there that offered the flexibility that we needed as a business in the supplements and natural health space, the ability to pause and resume, the ability to skip, the ability to aggregate multiple subscriptions across multiple separate subscription orders, and then allowing the customer an interface where they can actually aggregate those separate subscription orders together so they get dispatched on the same day of the month or the same week of the month. The ability to do all these super complex things, the ability to set the frequency both in days, weeks, or months that they want to receive those items. So I guess because I've gone down this path before, I know just how difficult and I have such a deep Anybody, there's lots of subscription platforms now. Back in the day, there was none. You pretty much had to do it custom from the ground up, and it was like a custom app that you'd have to integrate via API. So I have a deep appreciation and empathy for all that you guys have tried to bite off and deliver because it sounds easy when you say it fast, but when you get into the nitty gritty of just how complex, more important than the back end technology, it's the user interface and how those experiences get surfaced to the customer, not only for the first order that then turns into a subscription, but the interface required to allow customers to manage their subscriptions on an ongoing and granular way. Is that kind of like when you first got into this, did it seem like it was going to be super simple? And then you went, oh my God, okay, actually there's about a thousand use cases here that we're going to have to cater for. Yeah, you nailed it. So obviously the first thing as an integrator that I was looking to use was just subscription software. And if you haven't do dove into that before, 
what you quickly realize is subscription software just categorically is focused on billing. It's focused on billing plans, recurring billing, things like that. And what you learn very quickly if you try to implement this for deliveries of physical goods is it really does not anticipate any sort of changes to what is being purchased, certainly not how it's being delivered. I would say the answer to your question is, yeah, it was very surprising when I first started off how many problems there were really to solve in order to make subscriptions work for a repeat delivery model in particular. And then we have not only the front-end UI during the purchase experience and post-purchase experience, but then we have the integration with payment gateways, and not all payment gateways do tokenization. So there's a limited number of gateways that most subscription platforms can even leverage. Then we have the management of products that can be sold on subscription versus not sold on subscription, because Usually brands don't necessarily want every single product in their catalog to be able to be bought on a subscription basis. So some subscription platforms require you to effectively duplicate your catalog and load it into their system as a subscription product that then can be purchased. Some plans actually redirect you at checkout to their checkout because it's a subscription checkout. Then what happens in a scenario where you've got a, a composite cart? where you've got some subscription items, some non-subscription items. Then what happens when you get redirected to their subscription checkout? Are you going to have to go through checkout twice? Because some subscription platforms require that. They require you to go through a checkout for your one-off items, and then they redirect you to their checkout for the subscription checkout. So there's a lot of – I've seen probably almost every single approach to this that you can possibly imagine. But then we think about how these systems need to integrate with separate E-commerce platforms on-prem is a totally different proposition in terms of how you can own the checkout versus most SaaS platforms where there's very little that you can do in the checkout. So you're almost forced in some respects until Shopify made changes to their checkout APIs to allow you to access them. Prior to that, you were almost forced for subscriptions to be redirected to a proprietary checkout for subscription items. And so there's a lot going on here. This is a complex industry. This is a complex space. But if we set that aside for the moment, I think the compelling thing for most merchants here, in order for them to even want to go down the path of even considering this level of complexity and cost of implementation and maintenance, and also rev share with the subscription platform, which is usually how it works, the reason I see merchants being willing to jump through all these hoops is because the customer experience, A, is better, especially for a consumable, and then two, is guaranteed revenue or at least predictable revenue that you can forecast over time and allowing your brand to become a little more sticky with the customer as a result. So when you've been talking to your pantheon of customers, what are the primary motivations they're willing to swallow this level of complexity from your perspective? That's a very good question. So I say they change as they adopt this new channel, right? If we want to call it that for people that are new to subscription, it is best to describe it to them that way. You're setting up a new sales channel with your best customers. These are your repeat purchasers. So some of the things that they're willing to forego initially is things that are hard to talk about, actually, which is inventory visibility. You see some of them say, I just want to launch a subscribe and save offer because people like purchasing my product. And I believe I can get more predictable recurring revenue. And this is really common in D2C, where initially they're willing to 
forego logistical agreements with how their business operates just so that they can get the predictable recurring revenue and really just as a marketer try to work on that ratio of lowering the cost per acquisition by increasing the retention rate of those customers that they paid a lot of money to acquire right and this is so much of the how a d2c marketer sees it so they're will, usually willing to at first forego things that really make a lot of sense for their business operations just so that they can see if they can create a successful subscription channel for their d2c offering and what's interesting is as that channel grows and becomes more successful their tolerance for what they decided to ignore at first starts to lower because as any new sales channel would, if you added it to your business, as it scales upward, those problems that it's scaling, in particular, lack of inventory, visibility, direct integration with their ERP system and the real source of truth for their business, or in some cases they didn't have an ERP set up, they're just running Shopify at first, and then they're adding one later because they're scaling up their business. Those are the types of issues that we see ignored initially and then become paramount as the subscription channel succeeds in its growth. And does that, as they mature and as they look to enhance and extend subscription operations into other areas of the business, does that weakness eventually become a strength? And let me give you an example. So inventory visibility becomes a real challenge in that environment until you start integrating the forward-looking modeling and analytics of the subscription platform and who's on a subscription and when those are scheduled to hit what kind of volumes they're like to see out of that. Because once you've had a subscription offering for say 12, 18, 24 months, you start to see the patterns. You start to identify the patterns of skips. You start to see the pause and resume patterns. You start to see the retention patterns and how long the average retention length of a subscription is with you. You start to get really clear data points on being able to forecast with pretty high levels of certainty what kind of volumes you're going to be doing on subscription based on the numbers subscribed and the SKUs subscribed to and the duration subscribed to. And so I feel like initially what is a black hole of data because it's a brand new channel and you have no historical data to base your forward-looking modeling on, that's true from day one. But pretty quickly, you start accruing some pretty essential data that then can come into your forecasting and modeling that you can't get any other way outside of a subscription model. So I feel like some of those weaknesses initially turn into strengths given enough time. Do you see similar, once you integrate basically subscriptions into your operational workflows, that can give you a lot of leverage. Absolutely. And I think the experiences that we have as implementers are usually how we see it in terms of when is this business starting to invest in either changes, development, or sometimes it's just process and training to say like, how do we use that data now as a strength? So in some cases, let's take my own journey with Qpilot. I chose to design a platform that directly integrates your product SKUs and that data with how those subscription orders are actually planned and working. Why? So we could remove the barrier, remove that silo from saying it's a subscription plan that We couldn't necessarily see what products are being ordered until after they are to taking another view of it of saying it's really just an order that's scheduled for the future. And if we treat it as such, we can use those predictable metrics to our advantage and use that as a big strength. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think initially 
where I'm saying that they don't necessarily care about it. They're just trying to succeed at getting people to opt into their subscription offer, their subscribe and save offer, their auto ship offer. Very quickly, they start becoming desirous of the other aspects of predictability, particularly the inventory, as well as other costs that are associated with a subscription program that they want to work on and obviously optimize things like shipping costs, things like that. The number of products that you can include from your product catalog on subscription offers, upselling those products into things, the more that you can get into that subscription channel, the more that you can do what you said, Jason, you can mine that data right out of that subscription channel and use it in your forecasting and your operations. And what I'm seeing a lot of merchants take the approach of now, and I'd love to hear your take on this, is that initially the subscription offer in and of itself was enough value to the customer to give them the convenience of not, for example, if it's dog food, say, for example, and I know my dog's just going to go through this bag of dog food. He's going to go through one a month, every single month, because I measure out how much I give him. He gets fed twice a day. I know exactly how often this needs to come to me. Just the convenience of not having to log in and place that order every single month is enough of value add for me as a customer to take that on, right? And so we saw that. We saw that in pet care. We saw that in prescriptions. We saw that in lots of things where there was a fixed consumption. Maybe it was cosmetics. And I know I'm going to go through this. I'm gonna know, I know I'm going to go through one eyeliner a month every single month. So I just need this thing to turn up at my doorstep. I don't want to have to log in and place my order for eyeliner every month. But now I think brands, because there are so many competing brands that now offer subscriptions in the consumable space, now brands are having to get a little bit smarter and a little bit more creative about the value prop that subscriptions bring because they know that those customers have such a much better improved LTV, right? So I'm seeing things like, for example, additional loyalty points if you order on subscription versus a one-off. I'm seeing additional discounts if you order like both in the initial purchase as well as ongoing purchases. But then we have the complexity of the price that you purchased under subscription then changes. The price of that item goes down, but now they're getting charged the original subscription price. That's a challenge too. So a lot of brands aren't ready to make sure and give a guarantee of lowest price guarantee for a customer on a subscription because what really should happen in a right subscription model, the subscription module should be going and checking the price of the current price of that product and it should be giving them that price. And if it's on special, they should be getting a special price plus their enhanced discount, plus their enhanced loyalty. So there, again, this just re references back to the complexity of creating a fantastic customer experience through subscriptions. And there's a thousand and one variables in this thing that a lot of merchants don't consider. And I think that merchants are increasingly being forced to consider those variables to differentiate their subscription offer versus their competitor subscription offers. Is that what you're, is that what you're seeing too? Very much, in, especially in the D2C context. You can think about it in your own experience, Jason. Use the example of pet food, which is a really popular subscribe and save or auto ship offer. And what is initially attractive to us as customers, including myself, when I'm buying pet food on auto ship for my own dog, is the fact that I really like the product a lot and usually I'm being offered some kind of deal, right? Subscribe and save 10%, subscribe and save 15%, something like that. So it's a no brainer at first of all, oh, I buy this all the time. This will help me conveniently have this 
just in time, right? As a consumer, that's a really attractive offer to have just enough right on time delivered to you. And I'm going to get a deal on it. And this is something that I really like and something that I need. So getting a deal on something that I'm going to buy a lot is already a very attractive thing to me. But as we know, as online marketers, our online purchasers are relatively sophisticated, especially around price, right? So there's a lot of different things that merchants, right, which you're exposed to a lot if you're a software vendor like Qpilot, you're exposed to what they're worried about. So that'll come across as, well, I believe people are taking a subscribe and save offer because they want a 10% discount. And then for whatever reason, maybe they don't believe that discount is as good as something else they could get, or they believe that at a later time, they might buy this from somebody else at a better price. In essence, they're a little bit more sophisticated around how they can source their products that they like online and what price they can get for them, they'll just cancel it almost right away. They call it subscribe and save abuse from the merchant's perspective. And from the customer perspective, you call it smart shopping. <laughs> they offered you a deal, you got the deal, you didn't need the subscription to get a better deal, or at least that's what you think. So you no longer use the subscription anymore and sometimes you cancel it right away. So very often we'll see these merchants, particularly the marketing officers of those brands, try to come up with different offers. So one that we've seen as a really simple example is an escalating discount that rewards the number of times your subscription order renews as a subscriber saying, hey, you initially signed up for a 10% subscribe and save discount. You got that right when you checked out. But, and this is communicated up front, on your fourth order, we're going to upgrade you to a 20% discount moving forward. And sometimes those discounts are being offered almost to them as a member saying, you're gonna get that level of price in general when you shop our catalog because you are a loyal subscriber. So coming up with offers and presenting them up front, right, on product pages, on banners, on advertisements that are being communicated about what a subscriber gets is very oftentimes designed with a mature subscription marketer to say the longer you're on a subscription, the better your price is, the better your treatment is, We've seen shipping also offered on a price initially and then discounted over time for more loyal subscribers. And sometimes they can come up with even more offers for them. It depends what they're marketing and what their capabilities are. But sometimes these brands also have communities that are able to have their experience upgraded based on how loyal a subscriber they are. But it's certainly a lot more of the marketing context that gets involved in terms of how do you keep these subscribers interested and engaged on being a subscriber. They know that you like the product, that's why you took the subscribe and save offer. But trying to come up with value propositions that make being and staying a subscriber and keeping that product on a subscription is something that marketers have to work on a lot more than they used to. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And especially almost every major brand will offer either a membership or a loyalty program or both and a paid, like a paid membership program. And you get certain perks by being part of that paid membership program. I think Inveterate has done a good job of evangelizing memberships. And so I think that what gets overlooked sometimes is the need to look at subscriptions very holistically from day one, because like loyalty, like membership programs, once they're in flight, it becomes much, much harder to change those offers without certain customers feeling like they either missed out because they signed up before you started to change the offer and make it sweeter, or they feel like, oh, I'm going to have something taken away from me, even though I signed up under one context and you're changing the program. So I'm actually losing out 
on something that I thought I was going to get. And so these programs, they tend to be very long-term, very sticky, and they tend to become an essential part of the UX. And if you start to tweak with those too much over time, a lot of these platforms, the inveterates of the world, the yacht pose of the world, they say, oh, you can tweak and test your loyalty program over time. You can do all these A-B tests. Rubbish. That, technically speaking, that is true. But from a UX perspective, it is very easy to alienate customers very quickly if they sign up under one context and then you change the program within days, weeks, or months of them signing up. This becomes a really scary part for customers to say, would I sign up for their next program or their next offer or their next opportunity knowing I might get a rug pull in three months' time? So what I always say to merchants is they need to look within the context of their overall offering, right? It's their overall UX that we're trying to improve. It's not just getting customers onto a, a recurring subscription. That's not the goal here. The goal here is to improve their overall customer experience with our brand. And that necessarily means we need to consider integrations with memberships and loyalty and freight, special freight offers, special programs, special promotions, special campaigns. We need to think of this within the context of our business model, not just in isolation. And I think this is where I see a lot of brands get caught out with subscriptions because even though they think it might be a relatively light lift, when they integrate a system like yours that kind of owns the whole subscription piece and makes the subscription piece easy. But if they're not thinking of that within the context of the whole UX, they're going to run into problems pretty damn quick. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've seen quickly where brands learn what they need to communicate fast and why that's going to influence the success of that customer's experience of their subscription is actually letting customers know as quickly as possible after they subscribe and save, what kind of changes could be made ahead of that next order date coming up. I'll give you a quick example and as to why. In the study of customer behavior, which as you can imagine, we're pretty obsessed with at QPUB because we deal in this repeat delivery platform that we're servicing with online stores that are using our platform. What we've learned is that in across all subscriptions. So it's going to skew a little bit differently for different types of products. If a subscriber makes one change before their next order ships, they see an immediate expect expected increase in LTV of about 30 to 40%. If they make two changes, it doubles. If they make three changes, right? Essentially they are dialing in, they're engaged with their subscription and personalizing it more, right? their expected LTV increases by over 300% as a cohort, meaning a cohort of subscribers that opted into a subscribe and save offer. And then before their first renewal of that subscription order, they made some changes that personalized it more towards how that product is used by them. So we've seen that brands offering subscription or businesses offering repeat delivery the ones that are very good at educating, usually in a fun way, right? In a nice, friendly way. Hey, you've gotten into your sub subscribe and save. You've gotten into our auto ship program. Here's how you make the changes that make this your own quickly. Those ones are doing probably the most important work of setting the initial foundation of a successful subscriber relationship where they know how to personalize what they get, what they're getting on auto ship or subscribe and save. So it's been profound to actually see that because 
when we use the word flexibility, sometimes we're talking about how the subscription program is set up and configured for the business, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, things that they might forego initially. But what they can't forego is making sure that the customer knows what they can do inside of that subscription channel to control this repeat order. Ideally, they don't have to. You can make an extremely personalized offer to them up front that they have to do very little towards. But that is why that LTV expectation is found to be increased greatly by that type of engagement very early on in the subscriber lifecycle. Makes complete sense. Anytime I'm actively going to log into a website to engage with a brand not directly related to an immediate purchase, that is an indicator that I'm pretty heavily engaged with that brand and that experience when I'm not going to the website just to make a purchase. I'm going to the website to tailor my ongoing experience with that brand. That tells you something. That is, a, that is an indicator. That is a very clear indicator that I'm engaged with that brand, that I have long-term relationship intent with that brand, and that I'm going to want to maximize my opportunities to get value from that brand. And I get this, there's only a couple of brands in the States, for example, that I'm that heavily engaged with, and I'm really engaged with those brands. And if we, if we shift gears just slightly here, and we compare and contrast the B2C, D2C experience that we're trying to create, which is usually very heavy from a UI, UX complexity perspective, particularly because marketing is running so many concurrent programs at the same time. They're running maybe a weekly campaign, maybe a monthly campaign, maybe a segmented campaign, maybe a STEM campaign. They're running loyalty. They're running membership. They're running subscription. Those are complex because they are primarily driven by marketers and marketers like to get super creative with how they engage with customers based on the segmentation and cohorts that they're dealing with. B2B is a different beast. B2B is all about speed, convenience. Okay. Maybe it's a little bit about price, but it's a lot less about price because usually the prices are negotiated on a per customer basis and a priceless basis anyway. So the whole experience for a B2B customer is usually how can I spend as little time as possible engaging with a supplier to get the shit I need as fast as possible. That's usually the mantra in B2B. And is that what you're seeing too? You're seeing these programs be put into place primarily to reduce the load on the buyer and saying, look, they don't need to, they don't need to log in. They don't need to send us a PO. They don't need to, they don't need to integrate a, a punch out portal that can integrate with our procurement system. This is just going to happen automatically and it's going to happen routinely. And if, for example, I'm buying, let's say I'm an office and I need to buy office stationery and I know I'm going to go through five boxes of paper a month and I just need five boxes of paper to turn up at my doorstep every single month. Or I know I'm going to go through 50 boxes of pens a month. I don't want to have to log in and place this order. And so it simply makes this so much easier to minimize the amount of engagement with the supplier. So it's almost the polar opposite of the B2C, D2C world. We're trying to get them to engage as much as possible in the B2C, D2C world. In the B2B world, we're trying to remove the friction of even having to engage by choice with us. We're trying to get them to engage in a no-brainer kind of way with us. Is that kind of what you're seeing from the B2B side? Absolutely. The value proposition, if you wanted to back off of it a little bit and say that shared is predictability, right? Predictability is generally good, but how that then derives into what kind of predictability, right? In B2B, I think we saw this accentuated during the high years of the COVID sort of reaction that was causing lots of disruption in the supply chain. This is where people in the mainstream are becoming aware of 
why predictability is such a big deal, right? And in B2B, when you are the inventory that you are expecting to purchase and procure of being available, this is where having this type of channel and this type of customer experience is profound in terms of the value proposition. Because what we saw early on, let's say at NetSuite, for example, was sure, we could have purchase orders and we could even memorize them, but there really wasn't much of an interface unless you wanted to invest in EDI and tools like that. And not every business has enough of a relationship to want to invest in those types of things or as a program that's being managed that way. But they have an online store and they have an ERP system and they want to be off, able to do a better job with managing inventory for purchase orders for the people that they're supplying. They are very desirous of channels like this because they want there to be a customer experience where a purchaser can go in and say, yes, maybe I shopped your catalog just like a D2C catalog, but I'm putting these into some sort of repeat delivery or auto ship program. And creating that visibility is such a profound outcome because now the person offering the auto ship program in a B2B context actually has something that's telling them those predictable metrics that we were talking about earlier with subscription, saying this much product to this location ordered with these other products, right? And now I can plan that with lead time and make sure that's available to you. So this reliability aspect, while I think the consumer world tasted a little bit when their supply chains are disrupted, in the B2B context, this is the supply chain doing digital transformation. It's adopting elements of consumer experience that make sense and say, hey, this is good. This is a great customer experience for our purchasers to use. They've got a portal they can log into and see things, but they already generally have a relationship. They weren't necessarily acquiring customers through subscribe and save offers the same way that D2C marketers are. Right? They're saying, this is the best way for us to communicate your purchase expectations. And it's the best because we can actually see them. We can see the changes that you make with lead time. And there's a much higher probability that you're going to get that auto ship order fulfilled than a purchase order that comes out of nowhere and lands on our desk that we now have to go see if we have the inventory fulfilled. Yeah, and I think you make a very good point, which is that the crux or the key one of the key operational elements of B2B businesses is demand planning. And one of the reasons why, you know, I work with NetSuite a lot. It's my preferred ERP. I recommend it over all other ERPs for just about almost any retail scenario in particular, but even B2B. And one of the reasons that a lot of brands will implement an ERP to begin with is to get demand planning. Because what you don't get with a Zero, with a QuickBooks, with all these other platforms that are lightweight, basically just financial platforms, just like accounting packages, what you don't get is forward-looking modeling, visibility, and demand planning. And most good ERPs will have a demand planning module built in. And so that when you move up to the big boy and girl end of town with a full-blown ERP, is that modeling, is that forecasting, is that AI, is that demand planning module to try to minimize both stockouts, but also minimize overstocking to where now all of a sudden I've got the cost of flooring in my business. I've got the cost of finance in my business. I've got tied up cash flow that I can't buy stock that is actually selling through at a great rate of knots and momentum. So demand planning is such a big deal for B2B businesses that this almost becomes demand planning in advance that is, is so much more accurate than even the best AI 
best machine learning, best algorithm from a demand planning perspective, this is effectively committed order. Sure, they could cancel. Sure, they could pause. Sure, they could resume. But this is probably a better way to do demand planning than any form of AI could ever be. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some elements of the D2C subscription experience that have really informed some ways to simplify some things that have previously been very complex uh, to bring into and implement in the B2B experience. I'll give you a really quick, simple example. At QPilot, we developed something, we called it the Blue Apron feature is a nickname, which is a changeable before date. All it means is we have implemented the seller's preferences in QPilot saying, we know how long it takes you to dispatch an order right before you can actually ship it. You can process it, pick pack and fulfill it and then you can ship it. And that's one type of lead time for the order dispatch. On top of that, right, how should we communicate this to the person who is the subscriber or the purchaser in a B2B context? And we just call it changeable before date, meaning in a lot of times it's about five to seven days. This is a very typical average saying five to seven days before your order is expected to process, you need to have your changes committed. In other words, we're not, ch we're not accepting changes after that time. That one little piece of implementation makes the world of difference because A, you can communicate it just like you would if you were receiving a subscription box from a meal delivery service like Blue Apron. They'd say, hey, Jason, make sure you have your meal selections ready by this time because after that, we're actually going to use your meal selections and we're going to pack that box for you and get it ready to ship. Right? In B2B, this is a very nice value add of something they took from the D2C subscription experience. And they communicate that upfront. Usually it's via email, sometimes it's via text. In B2B, sometimes they even use the phone, right? To call them up and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know, you got a huge order that's on auto ship that we're gonna be processing soon. Any more changes to make to it? You get your purchasers into a cadence of this. One, you build a lot of trust with them. And two, you're getting really important data communicated to you on time. And that's really what's going to drive that demand planning and the success of a just-in-time delivery. The more you use that lead time and leverage it and implement with it, the more you can improve the experience around it. And it just drives the integrity of that auto ship program higher and higher. People really start relying on it and enjoying it. I guess the other thing that B2Bs can do is they can also say the communication might be, hey, look, we're going to lock this order in. It's just about ready to be processed. Any changes after this time, even if we can execute them, we're going to charge you a fee. We're going to, we're going to charge a nominal fee. It's going to be 5% of your order. It's going to be 2% or whatever it is, a change order fee because we're actually in the process of executing the order, pick, pack, dispatch process, sourcing process, whatever it might be. And therefore, our cost to change after this time goes up substantially. And so therefore, we have to pass a portion of those costs on. And that helps to get a deeper commitment from the buyer that they're actually committed to this purchase and that they actually need to be a little more thoughtful about this purchase as opposed to just treating it as, okay, I'm going to leave this on order. And then if I need to change it a day beforehand, great, I can go ahead and do that. And so I think that it's the level of proactivity here and automation that is unique in the B2B space in the sense that historically, this has all been managed by salespeople. This has all been managed by field sales reps, AEs, SDRs, SDMs. It's been managed primarily by the people who hold the relationship with the customer and who have negotiated the trading terms and the price list and the credit terms and all these different things. And so I feel like this is bringing 
a very B2C, D2C level of automation to B2B that B2B just has never really had access to before. Because primarily, most of the really amazing personalization, search merch, all of the amazing technology from a UX perspective lives on the B2C, D2C side of the fence, not the B2B side of the fence. And so I think we can definitely cross-pollinate and translate a lot of those ideas from B2C, D2C land into B2B equivalents, but that have a heavy operational focus as opposed to a marketing focus. And that's the key differentiator I see between B2C and B2B is marketing versus ops. In B2B land, it's tech and ops are the two big focuses in the business. Whereas in B2C land, it's all marketing. Marketing owns that whole relationship with the customer, right? And in B2B land, oftentimes there are no marketers. There's sales teams, but oftentimes they might not even have a marketing team. They might not even have one person dedicated to marketing or UX. It is all driven by salespeople. And so I think that this feels to me like if we can translate those experiences into operational enhancements and operational efficiencies, and that's how we package this for the B2B world, then we're going to see much higher uptake of these kind of technologies in B2B. Absolutely. And it's not like the promise of this is to automate all of your procurement or automate all of your demand planning, but any incremental improvement to this makes such a the difficult job of procurement management and forecasting and demand planning a little bit easier. So when you can get buy-in from the operators of the business that are involved in this, it's a very powerful type of change that can start being implemented in this channel, right, where purchase orders are managed and procurement is being managed can benefit from this a little bit more. They're, they're still working on retention. They're still working on predictability, but they have a lot more of this value proposition focused on that operational efficiency that makes their lives any easier because they have such a hard job already to do. Couldn't agree more. And for you guys, if you were to look at the rough split, I don't expect exact numbers, but if the rough split between brands that deploy your technology that are B2B brands versus B2C brands, what's the rough split for you guys? Oh, that's a great question. So I'll start off because we launched this in late 2018, about 2019. When we first launched, we probably had about 95% D2C, right? I want to launch an auto ship program or subscribe and save program for my customers. And today it's 30-70, meaning 30% B2B, 70% D2C. And I think on top of that, you're also seeing some traditionally B2B companies spin off D2C stores simply because they learned how to set up a sh an online shopping cart for their uh, B2B operations. And they're like, wait a sec, <laughs> we can create a D2C offering as well. And if they're successful at it, they enjoy a higher margin in those cases. So not only is B2B starting to increase in terms of their adoption of these auto ship type channels and these repeat deliveries, but they're also getting an appetite to spin off other channels as well, because they do have the visibility that they need, the operational efficiency that they need, and now the shopping cart and e-commerce sophistication that they need to do it. And they're in an excellent position to do it in some cases. That validates what I'm seeing because a lot of my, I guess my consulting clients are either D2C brands that want to establish a B2B channel because they want to be able to have the scale of B2B and the predictability of B2B and not be at the whim of exploding CAC costs and trying to be in every channel where their customers might be. But I'm also seeing the opposite. I'm seeing 
a lot of B2B brands saying, hey, we want to get closer to our customers, the end consumers of our products. We want to create a two-way dialogue and close the loop on that from a new product development perspective, from a loyalty perspective, et cetera. Plus, we want to increase our margins and we want to have the retail margin and the wholesale margin. So we're going to establish a D2C channel in parallel with our existing B2B channel. So I'm seeing cross-pollination going both directions and really channel mix that de-risks the overall business model of the business by being a truly omni-channel business and not just omni-channel in terms of physical channels versus digital channels, but also B2B business models and running multiple business models across multiple channels. So that makes a ton of sense. Now, when we think about the integrations that are out there in the market for most subscription platforms, they'll have an out-of-the-box integration with a Shopify, BigCommerce, a Magento. They'll have out-of-the-box integrations that you just basically plug them in. It's a single-click app and you're off to the races. Now, I noticed you guys have taken a very different approach to this, and you have no integrations out of the box. And so this is almost the, this is the antithesis of what we see most app vendors do. They want to make it as easy as possible to adopt their technology, and so therefore, they want to make it like a five-minute affair to plug them in. You guys have taken a very different approach, and I'd love to understand the thinking behind that, the rationale behind that, and why it is for you guys, it's a custom integration of your platform Every time, at least as far as I know, at least as far as I can tell, you don't have any single click apps for Shopify or Beast or Magento. That's a great question. So yes and no. So we do have a Shopify app. We call it AutoShip Cloud. So that allows you to spin up an AutoShip program very quickly. And it does integrate you with the QPilot platform. But the reason we buy an AutoShip is that's generally what these merchants are looking for. So we just call the app AutoShip Cloud. It's powered by QPilot. And then we have a plugin that integrates with WooCommerce so that you can use this with a WordPress-powered website as well. And those are those very nice, add this, install it, boom, my product catalog is being synced with QPilot and all these things are just set up for me. But we're an API-first platform, meaning that we're set up for other styles of integration. So for example, we have companies that sell air filters and treatment supplies for like spas as well. So think about an air filter for a commercial facility and things like that. And while there are integrations that have been set up by those companies to work with e-commerce, what they're really locked in on is the idea that a human operator is not actually the person who reports the changing needs of the purchase expectations. So we'll use an air filter as a simple example. In the idea of predictive maintenance, right? a lot of our devices are pretty intelligent now and can take some data for themselves of saying, hey, usually we would be replacing these air filters every six months, but the activity level has been higher or lower, for example. This is not something easy for a human to know, but a device knows very simply. And it can report via API what that is. So in QPilot, because we manage things as a scheduled order, not necessarily a subscription plan, merchants get to call it whatever they want to. There's an API for that device to report to and say, I had an order that was scheduled for every six, six months, but based on what's changing and because I need to report, kind of like we were talking about those human operators would go in there into the website and say, I need to make this change before I'm locked into this order being purchased. They can report with a as quickly as the developers design that integration to work with our API to say, we're actually going to dial that downwards and we're going to report that activity and use of the air filter has been higher 
So it's going to be needing to be replaced sooner than we originally expected. It's not going to be six months. It's going to be now, let's say, 100 days, right? They can go into the Keypad API simple request, update that expectation, and you get the same output as you would with a human operator was logging into a website to make that happen. So we've taken an API-first approach to it because we do have a philosophy that guides us forward that humans have not really, the best use of our time is not spent managing repeat purchases. And there is a world around us that has come online that can be leveraged in outside of human operators to help manage repeat purchases and make our lives a little easier. So this is really primarily in the realm of IoT and devices that really are effectively almost like automated field services that need to update this on behalf of the customer's equipment. Could be a piece of machinery, could be a piece of equipment that is based on hours, for example. And okay, it's done this many hours, and so therefore it needs to have an oil change and a filter change. So therefore we're going to send this out to their to their field sales team so that they can change the oil on this caterpillar, for example. I guess what we're saying here is that and look, I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but if I was to take a guess, I would imagine that 30% of B2B is going to perhaps get closer to 50-50 over the next three to five years versus the B2C, D2C space. And I, I know this because I'm seeing that the demand for B2B e-commerce full stop is growing at a, because it's a primary focus of my consulting business. I'm seeing more B2B brands now because they, probably because they started so far behind, probably because, probably because most B2B brands either didn't have e-commerce at all or it's been a crappy experience for such a long time. And then COVID lit a fire under their butt when their field sales reps couldn't go and see customers anymore. They had no choice but to adopt digital channels. And so there was a panic. Oh, my God, we don't do e-commerce or we do it really bad. We got to get better at this and we got to figure this out one way or another. We got to – it's basically the carrot and the stick, right? We had both hit at the same time. We got the carrot of all these younger B2B buyers who are oftentimes millennials wanting to buy online just like they buy in their personal life combined with the stick that was COVID and you combine those two things together and it lit a fuse underneath B2B commerce like never before, like I like nothing I've ever seen before. And I think the forecasted CAGR over the next decade is something like six or seven times what the estimated CAGR for B2C, D2C is. So I foresee massive growth in the B2B commerce space. And this aligns, I think, very nicely with your API first model, your kind of, for lack of a better term, headless first model, whereby this can be integrated into a kiosk, this can be integrated into kind of almost any front end system that is either automated or human driven can be integrated in with your system with a series of relatively simple API calls to basically say, hey, look, update, create, cancel right? Pause. These things are easy to do via API. It's a very short call to an API to make these types of changes. Whereas if you then have to layer a really super complex UI on top of it, that's human understandable, that's a lot more work. So it feels if you've done the heavy lifting for the B2C, D2C merchants who don't want to build all that stuff out custom, but then from a B2B perspective, you give them ultimate flexibility. This feels like the kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah, very much. I think the B2B adoption of e-commerce is accelerating at a very impressive rate. There's a lot of people excited about it, as the shopping carts are as well. You can see they're warring over their feature parity over there for their B2B feature sets. But you'll, I think what we're seeing now is that B2B can invest more heavily in automation in sort of these industrial applications, these preventive maintenance contexts. D2C will learn more from them that way, whereas B2B is learning a lot about customer experience and ways to simplify 
some of the ways that you can increase performance in the subscription channel by improving the customer experience. I do see that D2C is learning from B2B the opportunities for more integration, more embedded uh, type of integration that doesn't require so much human interface to make changes to subscriptions. And if you were to look out over the next, say, 6, 12, 18 months of your platform, is there anything your customers need today that you don't currently offer that you plan to add? Or is there anything that's just already on you guys' roadmap that you say, look, we don't do this today, but we really want to do this. We want to tackle and own this piece. What's coming down the pipe for you guys, I guess, in terms of a product roadmap that you can share? Yeah, something we're really excited about. So we focus a lot of QPilot as on the delivery, the customer experience of these deliveries that they're getting, which makes us a little different than our subscription app counterparts. In essence, we power experiences where subscribers can actually select the delivery dates that they want and not necessarily the order dates, which is a confusing experience for a subscriber to choose an order date, but not really know when that product is expected to be delivered. Obviously, that's not even acceptable at all in a B2B context. So one of the things we're very excited about is we're going to further evolve this customer experience so that we can leverage lead times to display to them not just the different delivery methods that they could use to have their subscription order delivered, which is already something that makes us very unique, but actually displaying to them, in essence, a fair calendar to say, on these different dates in the future, here's how that cost changes for you if you choose from these different delivery dates in the future. So that's something that we're really excited about. We think that focusing on the customer's ability to control when the product is delivered and actually received by them is already a really profound feature for subscription brands to be able to offer to their subscribers. And then especially in the B2B context, we think that the purchaser's ability to see the differences in cost for when that order is expected to arrive is going to make their jobs tremendously easier. And by integrating it the way that we do at QPilot, it's not even going to require a new implementation of those shipping services that they've already implemented for their checkouts. Wow. Absolutely amazing. And how do you guys make your money? How do you charge? Is it like a, a fixed fee per order? Is it a percentage of revenue driven through the platform? How do you guys make your money? That's a good question. So we don't charge a percentage of order processing. Most of our B2B customers wouldn't even be comfortable with a model like that because of the size of their order values. We actually charge a flat fee. So we charge like most SaaS companies, a monthly subscription that gets you access to different tiers of features, depending on which monthly subscription you're in. And then a flat fee as low as 15 cents uh, per uh, subscription that's being managed on our platform and as high as 35 cents um, for some of those lower plans where they're getting access to a lower volume for their subscription program. So these flat pricing models where they're just paying for the number of subscriptions being managed instead of the value being order processed uh, makes us a little bit different at Qpod as well and helps make your cost of your subscription program a little more manageable. Oh, definitely democratizing. Definitely democratizes it, especially for, especially for B two B brands that yeah, their AOV is like through the roof. There, they really want to still continue to offer these types of advanced services. Where RevShare model might work for B two C, D two C, it usually won't work for B two B. Not like the flat fee model that's very predictable for brands to be able to budget for. This makes this makes a ton of sense. And then that hey, as our adoption rate goes up, here's what our fixed costs are going to look like to our business, and so we can actually budget appropriately for those, or we can include those in our shipping costs. We can offset those in other ways in our business to make sure we're not losing our shirt on the program. 
Now, thank you so much for spending so much time with me today. We're coming down to the end of our time together. This is where uh, the point where I get to turn the microphone over to you. I get to flip the script. I get to let you ask me one question, any question you like. It can be personal, it can be professional, it can be anything you like. So David Bradley from QPilot, what is your question for me today? I love it. So Jason, my question for you is from what you've seen in all the different companies that you've worked with and the implementations that you've done, how are you seeing the landscape for offering shipping, right, as an experience changing at all for your customers? I'll give you a really quick example. We've seen at QPilot that brands are actually adopting the display of the cost of shipping more and more than they are just offering free shipping and baking it into the cost of the products. So I'm curious if you've seen the same and if you've seen this go in a direction where shipping is less frequently being offered as a discount or free with the brands that you work with. Yeah, I'm seeing two big changes happen in the industry that are happening pretty quick, possibly even a little bit quicker than I maybe expected. One is the offer of multiple shipping tiers as opposed to just best rate shipping or free shipping, but to say, okay, even if we offer sh free shipping, this is maybe two-day or maybe it's maybe it's no guaranteed date shipping. It's fast. It's best effort shipping. But then if you want it overnight or if you want it, if you want express shipping, then you're going to pay, you're going to pay extra for that. And so therefore for the customers that don't need it quickly, that are, that maybe they, I don't know, maybe they're buying a ball gown for a wedding or something that they're going to go to in a month's time. So they're literally in no hurry. Why would you offer free shipping to them? That's a premium express shipping when you could offer them the three-day shipping, four-day shipping, whatever it is, right? Or guaranteed date. It's going to be delivered by X date. So that's the first thing. I think offering shipping tiers as opposed to just here's one single offer for shipping for you, I think offering optionality is something I'm seeing. Second thing I'm seeing for reverse logistics, I'm seeing many brands move to at least a nominal charge for returns. So it, it may not cover all the returns costs, but just to try to create a tiny bit of friction to making a return as opposed to dropping in a free return label into the outbound shipment, assuming that somebody's going to return something. I'm seeing them stop doing that combined with charging at least a nominal fee. Maybe it's only a dollar. Maybe it's only $2. It doesn't even cover your cost, but it causes the customer to take at least a little second thought to, hey, I'm going to have to go to a little bit of effort to get this back. I'm going to have to pay a tiny fee to get this back. I'm, when I get refunded, I'm going to get refunded less a buck or two bucks, three bucks. So it is going to cost me a little bit of money. And really what brands are trying to do is they're really just trying to get customers to be a little bit more thoughtful about the cost to the business, but also the environment and lots of other impacts, social impacts of returns. They're trying to get customers and even the packaging of returns and the packaging of outbound shipments and replacement products and all that sort of stuff, there's a heavy cost to reverse logistics. So I'm seeing brands be a lot more thoughtful as opposed to just simply saying blanket free returns across the board, no questions asked. I'm seeing them be a lot more thoughtful about how and when they offer free returns. Obviously, if something's damaged or broken on arrival, then they'll usually offer a free return for that. But if it's just a change of mind, then maybe they only charge in those scenarios. So I'm seeing brands be a lot more thoughtful in the outbound shipping options they offer, but also the return shipping options they offer. Those are the two big changes I'm seeing. And I think that's only for the good. I like that a lot. I think the customer experience of what that brand is offering and how they can offer it not only shows them what the options are, but what their expectations can be 
And knowing that up front, I think just in, increases the level of trust that the customer can have in that brand. Would you say that's the emotion that is central to why that experience is important? I'd say it's two things. It's transparency and trust. And a lot of the brands historically have had maybe a, a shipping page with information on that shipping page, but you actually had to go to the page to even know what their shipping processes were, what their shipping tiers were, what their expectations of time, especially for these drop shipping brands that mm. do pure drop shipping. Oftentimes they, they were intentionally opaque about their shipping and intentionally opaque around their returns policies and RMA policies. I think those days are over. I think that in, in any brand that wants to seriously compete today, they have to be transparent about absolutely everything because customers have options. And they've got options to deal with transparent and trustworthy businesses in every single vertical now. So why would I deal with a brand that even has an element of shadiness or even an inference of shadiness or lack of trust? Why would I take that risk when I don't need to? If I'm a consumer, I got a, probably a hundred places online that I could buy these goods from. And, and then all, if all else fails, I'll just go buy off of Amazon, which has total transparency and trust. So I, I think brands are getting a lot smarter and a lot more savvy about the level of communications pre and post purchase that they need to have with customers that are not just sell, but that are how can we create a two-way level of communication with customers that builds trust and builds brand loyalty and builds brand stickiness to the point where I'm advocating and I'm pushing so hard on the industry to turn customer service into an outbound customer love department not just an inbound customer complaint department because in no instance, not a single instance of any brand I work with is customer service, all customer service team members busy 100% of the time. So they need to redeploy any downtime at all. They need to redeploy that downtime into outbound calling of customers. Maybe it's to, to call customers that have disengaged with the brand and to find out why. Maybe it's to talk to your best customers and say, how did you, we so appreciate your business and to thank them and be grateful for their business to find out how and why they even found out about our brand and why they continue to engage with us. What do they love about our brand? What can we fix or what can we improve ab about our brand for you as our loyal customers? What are some ideas you have to make your experience even better that we can implement? I just think that in most B2C, D2C brands, all marketing is push and it's all automated. It's how can we our, automate our marketing automation? How can we automate things through our CDP? How can we send emails and text messages and market better and segment better as opposed to how can we be better? And I think that's, I think that's where brands need to get more savvy and they need to get more personal and they need to try to scale the unscalable. That's what I think brands need to do. It makes a lot of sense to me because this is all about establishing the best relationship with your best customers. So thank you, Jason. My pleasure. David, thank you so much for your time. If people want to get a hold of you, do you prefer that people get a hold of you on LinkedIn or should people just go to QPilot? So the letter Q, P-I-L-O-T, and I'll put all the links in the show notes, but yeah. QPilot.cloud. Should they go to the QPilot website, sign up there, or should they reach out to you on LinkedIn, both? What do you prefer? Love getting contacts on LinkedIn. As you can imagine, as a business owner, I'm there constantly. We recently were able to acquire our .com name. So QPilot.com was launched last week. And I think that's the best way to get a hold of us in general as a team, qpilot.com. Are you a B2B or D2C e-commerce merchant? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to learn how we can help you scale your business.